doctors are not recommending their profession with the enthusiasm and the passion that they used to. And I think that should break everybody's heart. From Spa Damer and Tenney, it's White Coat Wellness, a show for doctors who are ready to improve their financial wellness. We know you work hard to help your patients, but you can't be at your best if you don't have your own finances in order. In White Coat Wellness, we highlight real-life stories from physicians and dentists to educate, encourage, and inspire you to personal, professional, and financial wellness. Now, from Spa Damer and Tenney, please welcome your host, Shane Tenney. Welcome back. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a seasoned uh, health system executive who served as CEO of Wellspan Health in uh, Pennsylvania, a hospital system with over a thousand physicians and uh, nearly nineteen thousand employees. Uh, Dr. Kevin Moser is experienced in in all facets of quality and operations performance, including physicians' practice management, uh, quality improvement, culture development, fiscal discipline. He's retired from the role of CEO and is currently a senior medical consultant for SE Healthcare and the law firm Saxton and Stump in Pennsylvania. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the role that that health system executives play in addressing burnout as well as just other trends in medicine. Uh, Dr. Moser, thanks so much for uh, making time for us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Maybe we could uh, just rewind a little bit and uh, I'll ask you to start at the beginning, how you found yourself in medicine and maybe a little bit about the uh, early years in your path uh, over to Wellspan. Well, I found myself in medicine really as a passion, as as most people do. My father was a dentist, and um, I was used to a healthcare system, but uh, I really had my sights set on on medicine. I uh, finished college and medical school, and uh, did my residency training actually in York, Pennsylvania, which is where Wellspan is uh, is headquartered. And uh, then was in private practice for about eight years and was uh, recruited away from that practice in order to teach in the family practice residency at York Hospital. I'm a family uh, physician by, uh, by training. So from there, I just kind of wandered around through the healthcare system and some one day became CEO. I'm not quite sure how it happened. <laughs> took, it a wrong, happened. took a wrong turn down the hallway, somewhere, I think. Yeah. Somewhere, yes. Yeah, what was the you went from practice and a panel of patients into gradually transitioning over into the the administrative side of medicine. What when did that become a path that you began to be aware of and thought would would be stimulating and interesting and one you wanted to pursue? Well, Wellspan began to pursue the creation of an employed physician group in about 1994. And at that time, I was teaching uh, family medicine, and I was pretty happy doing it, but I had gotten involved in a lot of different things, uh, managed care. I had done some work managing our model practice in the family practice center and uh, was asked to move over to our brand new medical group, which at that time had about 11 to 15 physicians and uh, be the medical director. So I went there to try to support the physicians as they made the transition from uh, their private practices into an employed group and see if we could build this group in a somewhat unique way to support our, our doctors. And, and that leadership role eventually progressed up and up into, into asking you to take over the whole, uh, the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. I, I did the medical group. I became a, the CEO of the medical group. Then I uh, moved to Gettysburg Hospital. Uh, most people know about Gettysburg from the Civil War. And uh, was the CEO of that hospital for about eight years. 
Then I moved back to uh, uh, corporate headquarters to become the chief operating officer and eventually CEO. Mm-hmm. Your your career spans uh, spans a couple decades. You've seen a lot of changes in medicine, I imagine. Many, many changes. And and what do you see prior to your retirement, I guess, or or up now? Where where do you see the 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 biggest changes that are most impacting the physicians? I, I think the biggest change has been the uh, movement from independent practice, or what I like to term self-employed practice, to uh, practice in some type of corporate employment, mm-hmm. uh, be it uh, a hospital system or be it a for-profit uh, company, be it uh, mergers of different practices into a larger group, which then by its nature begins to function in a more corporate fashion. Maybe three or four orthopedic groups come together, they hire a CEO, and then there's a structure for the physicians to work under um, as well. So there are many, many uh, iterations of physician employment. But that shift from people coming out of their residency, desiring to do independent practice and uh, practices being able to accommodate and recruit those young physicians, that shift to move doctors into employment, I think has been incredibly impactful on our, on our lives as physicians. And impactful, uh, let me ask you to, to define that, impactful positive or impactful negative? I think there have been many positives. I think uh, particularly for a generation of physicians that prefers a more structured work style, not having to handle the business of of medicine, the business of a practice can be a big advantage. I spent many, many hours trying to uh, get the books to close out at the end of the month. I spent a lot of hours uh, buying the telephones for the practice, handling personnel issues, a variety of things that actually the modern employed physician typically does not have to uh, deal with. On the other hand, the physician in a, a smaller uh, self-employed practice has an awful lot of autonomy and control over how that practice operates that they lose in an employed situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems from uh, from our world as a firm that that advocates for physicians from the financial planning perspective, it definitely sees seems that over the last two decades, there's been that consolidation as medicine's gotten more complex and reimbursements have gotten tighter to come by and, and joining a, joining a group has, has been advantageous. I have been struck over the last few years with the growth of albeit small still at this stage, but the growth of telemedicine, of direct primary care, of some of those things. And and as an outsider, as a layperson, if you will, I wonder to myself, and maybe I, I throw this out there to you, is the pendulum swinging back a little bit from the years of consolidation into a healthcare system into into more you know self-employed practices or alternative styles of medicine? I really don't think so, not for the bulk of physicians. I think there's some movement to concierge medicine, which mm-hmm. uh, for uh, many doctors has been a pretty healthy step, but obviously there's a limit to how many doctors can actually practice that way, uh, and not a, it's not for everybody. Even the telehealth, telemedicine, those are really all about the huge change in consumer expectation of healthcare, where we've gone from my style of practice, which was Uh, back in the 80s, which was really to answer the telephone, try to help somebody if I couldn't uh, help them. We could just try to get them through to Monday, and people were pretty patient about it. We we thought we were cutting edge in the 1980s because we had evening office hours, and so if you called, we could book you at 11 o'clock at night 
no patient's going to tolerate that anymore. They'll just hang up the phone and go to urgent care. So the, the, the desire for this instantaneous access, another big impact on healthcare in which people just simply aren't quite as specific for an acute problem as to who they're going to see, as to how fast they can be seen. Chronic care, however, I do firmly believe will continue to remain a continuity practice uh, going forward. Mm -hmm. And do you think, I was speaking with an executive of uh, the Novant Health System down in in the Southeast in North Carolina, where, where we're based, and the conversation was covering a variety of topics, some of which you're referencing here, and and the access to health care through the Affordable Care Act and that sort of thing. And and he really posited the point that as consumers want more choices and demand more choices, and there's an evolution around that, that there very well may end up being almost a two-tier healthcare system in the country or, or a uh, you know, access, as you point out, to concierge medicine, well, folks that can afford that and can can access that, then it's available for them. And those who can't then use traditional means. Uh, what are your thoughts around that? I, I agree. I think there's a cost to access. <clears throat> I think what we see is we see that people who can pay often have better access to telemedicine. It, it uh, is very often a cash business. Uh, much urgent care is done on a for-profit basis. And um, uh, and as a cash uh, over-the-counter business, we'll continue to see <clears throat> access become prioritized through, I think, uh, not only the not-for-profit channels, but also for-profit channels. And we, will, we, we aren't going to have a classic two-tier system because uh, I think our non-profit healthcare sector will always stand up for people who are vulnerable and provide them with access. But there's no question in the concierge space, that's, you have to have the money to get the concierge medicine there's no other way to finance the model. Mm-hmm. Over the last, I guess it's probably almost 10 years now since President Obama at the time started advocating for healthcare reform and, and the changes that we all know have come into play now. What do you see as the, the trend or the evolution in, in medicine over, over the next 10 years? I think that we'll see a very intense competition for acute care. I think everybody wants to handle the relatively low risk, fairly easy to manage uh, conditions that doctors have handled for hundreds of years. And we'll see that grow up in uh, all kinds of spaces that combine retail because there's an easy subsidization on the retail side uh, to the professional side. You know, I think one of the things that's overlooked is the fact that from a physician's salary standpoint, we're seeing a growing disconnect between the amount of professional fees a doctor generates and their salary. And one of the consequences of the large-scale employment of physicians is that salaries for doctors are becoming more and more market-based, whereas 25 years ago, what you made as a physician was just dependent upon the pro fees that you, the professional fees that you could generate. But with competition for doctors and market rates being set by MGMA and other uh, institutions, even despite productivity measurements and productivity incentives, uh, there's still still doctors are being paid actually out of proportion now to what they're able to generate in pro fees. And uh, that means that if you're going to, for example, get into the business as, say, a uh, CVS might, there's always a subsidy to that uh, physician salary if they're not that busy, they're not earning the pro fees. And you can easily make that up uh, in the example of CVS through sales of uh, various merchandise as people mm-hmm. come into your office. So, so somewhere, somehow, as physician salaries become market-based, 
you have to look at a larger equation of the finances of employing that physician and look at the other income streams that physician generates other than just professional fees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the, since you brought up compensation and, and I know we kind of foreshadowed at the beginning here and it will probably drift into trends in, in actual providers and burnout and some of those things. I wanted to get your opinion on, on compensation. And as uh, again, from, from my perspective and working with docs around the country day in and day out and our team on, you know, just their personal planning and goals. And, and that certainly ties into their compensation. We all know that, that contracts now are, largely production-based or RVU-based or or patient satisfaction-based. Is this a good trend or is this one that is exacerbating feelings of frustration or burnout? Well, first of or all, both. Have, well, first of all, I have to say there is no perfect compensation system. It's all a matter of what is the perverse incentive that you want to manage. So if you have a productivity-based system, then that puts a lot of pressure on the physicians to hit targets and changes the doctor from from seeing the patients at the pace they want to see them and at the quality they want to see them to be a more unit-based type of uh, mentality. And I don't think you really want that totally. The gold standard today would be at least a balance at 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 least 80% of your compensation is production and about 20% are other measures, which might be satisfaction, might be access, might be Quality might be a wide variety. It's, it's different from system to system. The problem for a physician who goes on salary is that the organization is likely to have a target for them anyway. And so whether it's hidden within, uh, okay, somebody stops and visits you and says, well, I know you're salaried, but boy, your production is really low. We need you to step it up a little bit. is pretty perverse. I think it's a matter of how you handle it. For me, I don't particularly love production-based care. I think that it's a uh, simply a, an artifact of the uh, strange compensation methodology the systems are under. And it won't go away until the compensation methodology systems are under are changed, until that incentive to reward the physicians for taking more time with patients becomes so high, say if you're under a risk arrangement or some other umbrella, that uh, you can actually convert them back to, sal- back to salary or to some other form of compensation, panel size, uh, some some other methodology. And are there are there any groups or hospital systems or practices that that you see that are coming up with innovative compensation models like you're describing? Yeah, it's 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 really always hard to know exactly what's happening in other organizations, but I know that Geisinger has experimented pretty heavily with salary based compensation that then uh, measures the doctor in terms of uh, their patient satisfaction in terms of their access, basically outlining, here's what we need doctors to do. We'll reward you for doing that and pay you a salary. I believe Kaiser pretty typically uses panel size because of the nature of that particular business as well. And everyone around the country is trying to experiment with, can we salary physicians? Can we change the pay model? Uh, how do we create the incentives? It's, it's really all about aligning incentives. But pure productivity in my mind, it today is a killer for physicians, and particularly if it's pure productivity in order to raise enough professional fee to cover your salary, because that's just a dead end. As, as anybody listening here knows, there has not really been an increase in physician compensation per RVU from payers for a very long time, and uh, that has essentially 
brought uh, profi generation too low in order to, in, in essence, compete salary-wise for physicians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to um, continue down that train of thought in just a second when we get back from this break. I'm Will Coster. On this episode's White Coat Wisdom, let's focus on setting goals. Now, I don't want to be a motivational speaker here telling you that you can be anything you set your mind to, but I do agree with the cliche that setting goals is the first step towards reaching your goals. This is true when it comes to financial goals, just like fitness goals, relationship goals, and every other type of goal. It is impossible to know if you have succeeded if you did not have a stated goal or target to begin with. In this segment, I want to highlight a couple benefits of approaching financial planning with a focus on your goals. First and foremost, being clear about your goals will help you be clear about where to spend your money. Having priorities, whether they are traveling, buying a house, saving for retirement, or simply enjoying the present, will allow you to make sure that your money is going where you truly want to spend it. If you do not have clear goals, it becomes much more difficult to prioritize your spending and saving. Another outcome of having defined financial goals is increased confidence. With clear, stated goals, you will inevitably find yourself saying yes to things that move you toward your goal and saying no to the things that will distract you from your goals, which will result in you feeling more confident about the decisions and path that you're on. You'll know that you're on track with the things that you value and that your life isn't being watered down by the things that are depriving you of what's most important. The final benefit I want to highlight of setting goals is increased freedom. This one may not be intuitive right away because it might initially seem more restrictive to say no to the spontaneous weekend trip because it interferes with your savings goal. But in the long run, having these goals does the exact opposite. It allows you the freedom from having your finances control your life. Instead, you take ownership of your finances, which results in a true sense of freedom. I hope these tips encourage you to sit down and map out some of your financial goals. With this episode's White Coat Wisdom, I'm Will Coster. Dr. Moser, you recently wrote a guest post for our wellness blog on on physicians and organizational dissonance. Um, we'll we'll put links to it in uh, in the show notes here. Can you talk a little bit about that topic? Because I think it's kind of a springboard from what we were just discussing about compensation models and and some of the uh, I like your phrase uh, the perverse incentives that you want to manage. Um, talk a little bit about that. Right. So so I've. Uh talked with many, many physicians who I've employed about what they think about the overall management of the system. And so physicians have a very difficult time. Uh, They're incredibly smart, incredibly resilient, incredibly hardworking people. But the world of uh, corporate management is a little bit mysterious to them. And therefore, there's a dissonance in communication between, often between management and the doctors. So my classic example is if you're running a health system, you know that CVS, maybe Walmart, just about anybody is interested in getting into the physician game in order to win on access. So you have so most healthcare organizations have huge emphasis on access, easy appointment scheduling, walk-ins, all those kind of things. Now here's the doctor, their world is in the practice and they don't have an appointment for 3 months. And they're working as hard as they can. They're trying to add patients. They're trying to meet. You're, you're saying we need more access. We need more access. And that's not in their world. In their world, they already have too many patients uh, to provide great care for. 
And so they don't understand why access is a problem. And in their mind, they're also providing great access because they'll see anybody who needs to be seen at any time. The problem is they'll see anybody who needs to be seen, but they don't have the ability to accommodate anybody who wants to be seen if, if it's not something that they consider to be that urgent. So as the decision-making moves back to the patient and organizations try to respond to that, it's just completely alien to the world that the physician is, is working in. So you have, a, you have a disconnect between what the administrators are saying is important and when the doctors are feeling is important at the, at the point of care. And is this topic, again, which you wrote about on our, on our guest blog, is this topic one that's, that is rising to the awareness of hospital executives and physician leaders alike to to open a dialogue or is it one that that most people are not really clear on what's causing this dissonance until they're introduced to the topic yeah i i think i don't think it's a big enough topic i think that communication between our doctors and their organization is critical if we're going to address the burnout crisis that we have because the physicians feel unappreciated they feel overworked they feel like another thing I mentioned in the article is that physicians are all about their patients. You know, the, their patient is first. It's just ground into you from day one. And so everything revolves around the patient. And so when they see money being spent in a wide variety of different corporate activities that don't make a whole lot of sense to them, and they're struggling for resources from the organization, they feel like they don't have enough resource. They feel completely underappreciated and undervalued. And when uh, people are constantly coming at them to meet this parameter, that parameter, or this parameter, and they don't understand the working life of the physician, and there's no listening, they're not, they're not creating listening devices, then it adds to the physician's devaluation and, and can uh, really exacerbate a burnout situation. So that dialogue has to improve. And it's gotten worse, to be honest, as organizations have grown, because if you're employing 50 physicians, you can sit down and talk with them on a regular basis. When you're employing 1,500, 2,000 physicians on a geography where the practices might be five or six hours apart, it's very, very difficult to have a constructive conversation with your physicians. And so um, this dissonance just makes that problem a lot worse. Mm -hmm. And the, the burnout issue, which is you know, somewhat ubiquitous these days, and, 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 and I guess from my opinion, rightfully so, because it's one that needs addressing I'm feeling the story that you're relaying there. And on the physician's side, who doesn't understand the vocabulary around organizational dissonance and some of these topics, they just feel I'm frustrated, exhausted, and my system is spending money on things I don't understand and squeezing it out of me and, and my compensation. But, but burnout, it's not just, it feels personal. And in, in some aspects it is, but it's not just personal. It's also systemic and system wide, I, I think would be your perspective and there's some some role that the the executives and the administration can play and should play. Absolutely. I think that this is a should be a major uh, priority of the CEO and the C-suite. And I have a tremendous regret that I didn't see this problem evolving fast enough and take the leadership role I should have within the organization. So the CEO is not going to be the day-to-day -day worker on this particular project. But first of all, they need to know how their physicians are feeling, and they need to take a leadership role as a voice that creates this as an organizational strategic priority. I've had organizations tell me, for example, that 
you know, they can't work on burnout because they're going to work on becoming a high reliability healthcare organization. Well, if you, if you can't engage your docs and their doctors are burnt out and making mistakes, you don't have much of a chance of becoming a high reliability organization. You have to address this fundamental problem. And it takes time. It's going to take years. Uh, there's, there's not a, uh, Dyke may, Dyke has a famous saying, Dyke Drummond, who you interviewed once, I believe. He says, uh, this is not a problem with a solution. You know, it's a dilemma that needs to be managed. And so the CEO needs to be sure that his organization has, his or her organization has a program. He or she needs to be absolutely certain that uh, someone is at point. They need to have a way of listening to their doctors so that they know how their doctors are feeling about things. And they need to drive decision-making through the lens of the day-to-day life and practice of the physicians. That's where the EHR is uh, really important in terms of having a strategy to make sure that works. The CEO needs to understand that 80% of burnout is due to system factors, and about 20% is due to the fact that physicians are trained to sacrifice everything for their patient, and even to their own personal harm, family or health or whatever. And uh, we need to help physicians get beyond that. That's a not a very healthy teaching that we grow up with. Mm-hmm. And is the is the awareness around the the critical issue that burnout is and is becoming is that awareness becoming widespread among hospital executives and CEOs now? Yeah, I think it is. And about three weeks ago, the uh, National Academy of Medicine, which is the fundamental organization that we that we produced uh, reports like Crossing the Quality Chasm back. Uh, in the 90s, just issued a, a very, very significant white paper and report on physician burnout. And in that report, they have several uh, recommendations that I would, I don't really have time to go over them now, but uh, certainly they encourage a, pro, uh, a viable program for managing uh, this issue. And I believe that, that the publication of that paper is going to get great awareness. And I also believe that over time, There'll be incentives for healthcare systems to begin having something in place to actually manage this problem and work with their physicians to uh, overcome the conditions that are causing the burnout. Incentives in place from the payers or or from the government or what are you? Well, the government is a pretty large payer for well, <laughs> so <laughs> fair point. A lot of ground, but I think yeah. I think all payers will yeah. will pick it up because what what they're going to see is lower patient satisfaction, lower lower subscriber satisfaction from their uh, partner organizations if they're not addressing this problem. Mm-hmm. With we're seeing uh, and hearing increased forecasts of a shortage of healthcare providers in the coming years, specifically physicians. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and I guess by corollary, a lot of opportunity for mid-level providers and extenders, but, but a shortage of physicians. What do you see as some of the contributing factors or, or the most significant contributing factors to that? Well, some of the, some of the contributing factors are that we have uh, many, many physicians who are leaving practice in order to tackle administrative roles or uh, take a different kind of uh, different kind of job that limits their their work because they're experiencing symptoms of burnout. So we see early retirement, we see high physician turnover, we see people just leaving and going into other professions. 
And we see a huge bolus of physicians trying to get MBAs and see if they can move themselves from a practicing environment into a management environment. If you just look at primary care and you think about the, the expansion of jobs in primary care due to the urgent care explosion, as opposed to the uh, continuity practice uh, space, then we're really seeing um, a lot of diversion of people away from continuity practice into, uh, into urgent care. The other contributing factor, quite honestly, is that uh, doctors are not recommending their profession with the enthusiasm and the passion that they used to. And I think that should break everybody's heart. It's a, it's a great privilege to be a doctor. Uh, you are entering people's lives in ways that nobody else gets to enter them. You develop relationships uh, that are very powerful. And it's pretty sad that we're not recommending that to our own children. Do you see, not to ask you a leading question here, but do you see, at the risk of asking you a leading question, what what role do you think the cost of medical school and student loans and the financial stress is on folks choosing the profession? I think it's significant in this sense, in that, um, you know, I had an interesting experience in medical school. Several of my friends uh, called me and asked me to go to dinner. And uh, when the bill came, they decided to split it. And I didn't have enough money to cover my, my share. But all of my friends who had become accountants and financiers and et cetera um, had plenty of money to cover, cover that. I think this gap between how fast you can establish a, a viable financial life the gap between uh, people who choose other professions and people who go into healthcare is widening. And I think it's, it, that's a deterrent. Uh, you can get through medical school. There are many ways to get through medical school and pay for it. And sometimes people do accom- accommodate the debt. But when they're making choices these days, and I think this will get worse with the next generation who went through the 2008 financial bust and are looking for secure jobs, I think that the choice between not really starting to make your living until you're maybe 27, 28 years old, and uh, being able to get right out and get a good job and uh, work on Wall Street or work in some other discipline, that's going to continue to divert a lot of our great talent away from healthcare and medicine. And so what can uh, what needs to be done to uh, spread the good word about the noble profession that it is and help increase the enrollment to medical school? I think we have to restore uh, in our doctors first the joy of practicing medicine. They need to be evangelists. Nothing else that we do will affect healthcare as much as our physicians being evangelists for the profession and expressing that joy once again. Dr. Moser, as our listeners are listening to you as a retired CEO, one who has seen a lot of change and in some ways in many ways, I think I would, I'll uh, tip my hat and, and say, seize the landscape today and things that you, in some ways you wish you'd done differently, in some ways things that executives need to be doing to care for the physicians who are caring for the country. And if our listeners here are listening to you and realizing, I don't think my CEO gets this. I don't think my director is keyed into this. That, I think, is some of where your organization or the group that you work with, SE Healthcare, is is trying to move the needle and make some difference through the physician burnout prevention program and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Help us know what what's the resource that you advocate for now? Sure. We, we uh, in brief, try to create a, a powerful listening device between the physicians and the uh, C-suite of the organization. 
And we do this through a survey instrument. And I know doctors are sick of taking surveys because they take a 40-question survey. Then you never hear anything about it. And they are always asked, are you burnt out? They say yes, and then nothing happens. Our instrument is uh, open-ended in many aspects and uh, only 10 questions long and allows the doctor to express themselves to the organization. And that's iterative, so it creates a conversation between the uh, healthcare organization and their doctors. We create a dashboard for the C-suite. And then in addition, we also create a library of uh, videos that uh, have been uh, filmed by Dyke Drummond that help physicians see what burnout really is. It uh, trains them in how to detect it and how to approach their colleagues because we're not enlisting our physicians in this effort either really very effectively. And uh, he gives them a lot of practical tips and trains them on how to better manage their work with a strategy and how to communicate better with uh, senior management. And so the C-suite is able to develop their priorities and their approach based on what the doctors are telling them with very little time. It's all transparent back to the doctors. And then the doctors also have the supplement of uh, being trained in an area where we were never trained in, and that's how to take better care of yourself, how to relate to the organization, how to manage your EHR with a strategy, and how to help your colleagues when they're experiencing significant burnout. And so SE Healthcare is really working to kind of stand in the gap of uh, both awareness and, and communication and strategy between executives who want to do something but don't know what to do and providers who want some help but don't know how to get the attention. Exactly. I was trying to take the randomness out of the approach, trying to get people to stop asking the question, are you burned out, and start asking, what is stressing you? What is burning you out? And then developing specific strategies as an organization to address those factors and continually, continually converse with their physicians so that this gets better and better and better. It's a at least a three to five year journey, I believe, for any organization that they're going to approach this problem. And so they need that that listening tool and they need that training in order to be successful. Excellent. Well, we certainly want, uh, I like your phrase about restoring the joy in medicine. And, uh, and I think that's what the, uh, it'd, it'd be a great, uh, great accomplishment if we could move the needle there over the next couple of years. That'd certainly be my dream. That's for sure. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Moser, thanks so much for giving us your time today, your perspective, your expertise, and uh, we'll include links in the show notes to the guest post that Dr. Moser wrote on our blog will also include links to the um, SE Healthcare website, and you can track him down if you're realizing that you'd like this CEO to talk to your CEO, then uh, we'll make sure you know how to find him. So thanks again. Great. Thank you. I'm Will Coster, bringing you this episode's White Coat Achievement, a segment where we highlight noteworthy achievements by your friends and colleagues. We are all guilty of reacting in certain situations due to implicit bias. This term refers to the attitudes or stereotypes that affect our understanding, actions, and decisions in an unconscious manner. Dr. Quinn Capers is this episode's white coat achiever not only for his clinical excellence and innovation, but for his transformative leadership in academic medicine. Dr. Quinn Capers is an interventional cardiologist. He's also the professor of medicine and dean of faculty at Ohio State Medical School. This vocal leader has paved the way for minorities in medicine. In 2013, he introduced innovations to reduce bias in the admissions process through implementing an implicit association test. Admissions committee members were asked to take the test, which uncovers hidden racial and gender biases. 
The year following this exercise, the admissions committee selected the most diverse class in Ohio State Medical School's history. Dr. Capers often leverages Twitter to spread the word about implicit bias while sharing his humor from his personal life. He also shares regular videos of him doing push-ups with the hashtag drop and give me 20. Though push-ups have little to do with implicit bias, this cardiologist has shown consistency for more than three years with his push-up hashtag challenge. This has helped him build a following far beyond Ohio State to get his message out. We will link to Dr. Capers' content in the show notes for you. As always, if you know someone who is wearing a white coat and is achieving something noteworthy, please let us know. We'd love to feature them on a future episode. But again, this episode's white coat achievement goes to Dr. Quinn Capers, who is calling attention to the issue of implicit bias and promoting diversity in medicine. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. We've got more episodes uh, queued up and ready to roll in the coming weeks uh, and months. Uh, Please don't forget to track us down. You can Google search White Coat Wellness and find us on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. We'd love to connect with you there. If you have suggestions for topics that you'd like to hear about or guests that you'd like me to interview, you can email me directly, shane at whitecoatwell.com. Thanks so much. We'll see you back here next time. This episode of White Coat Wellness is over, but you're not alone on your journey toward financial wellness. Spa Dame Rinteni has been helping physicians and dentists with their financial planning for over 60 years, and we'd love to answer any questions that would be of help to you. Visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Once again, that's sdtplanning.com, and we'll see you on the next episode of White Coat Wellness.